Hello and welcome to Label Sessions Presents. Label Sessions is a global platform that connects you to the best advice from the most interesting people, whether you want advice, mentoring, or ideas. I'm Nick Sherrard, one of the co-founders of Label Sessions. In this episode, a conversation with Mansi Parikh. Mansi is a leader in strategic foresight and innovation strategy. Her quest in life is to explore the liminal spaces between the past, present, and future, both real and imagined. I have personally loved working with Mansi in recent times as we have advised a range of global brands, but in this podcast, you'll hear some of her experience with brands like Danone, Bacardi, the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society, and Playboy India. There are many more besides. Ian at Label Sessions talks to her to find out more. Thanks, Mansi, so much for taking the time to chat with us. Um, I'd just love to learn a bit about a bit about you, what you do, who you are, um, maybe that's the best way to get started. So a little bit about me is that, you know, I've been a little bit all over the place. Uh, when you think about, you know, how people talk about their career trajectories, it's really hard for me to do just because um, my career has been very anti-planned in the sense that it's um, it's always been about this, you know, meeting people and um, you know, hearing them talk about the work that they do or um, offering me a, a position that, you know, that I certainly don't think that I'm capable of or, uh, but they seem to think so. Uh, and it's usually, you know, this feeling of, you know, sure, why not? You know, I'm going to, I'm going to try that. Uh, I'm absolutely not sure that I can do this, uh, but I feel like I would love to learn how to do this. And so, you know, it's usually jumping in the deep end. Um, so it's, you know, I, I studied engineering, but pretty much immediately as soon as I graduated, I was pretty sure that I didn't want to work in um, engineering uh, just because I studied it thinking that it would be far more practical uh, a course than it actually is. Um, I was hoping that I would get to actually learn how things work, um, how to make things. Intuitively, that would you would imagine that's what engineering is but it's it's a lot more theoretical so um i was pretty clear that you know i didn't i didn't want to work in it um <clears throat> and so an opportunity presented itself for me to work in a marketing role for a non-profit um and you know i i remember i still remember when i went there um i interviewed with the executive director at the time it was a pretty small team um, and they hadn't done any sort of marketing and communications at all for the organization. They were focused entirely on programs. Uh, it's an international NGO, but, uh, you know, their India office wasn't doing any comms. And so, uh, you know, we spoke and he's like, you know, you realize that you're really overqualified for this job. I, I can't pay you as much as you should be paid. Uh, and I was like, you know what, honestly, you're giving me this opportunity to learn uh, because it is going to be a lot of learning on the job. As much as I understand uh, the theory of how this should work or, you know, as a donor or a patron or, a, you know, even um, volunteers, I understand, you know, what would appeal, uh, but at the same time, executing it with very, very limited resources is a very, very different prospect. And so that's, you know, that's how I landed my first gig uh, while I was there, I, I was still not entirely done with technology. Um, at the time, uh, this is around 2010-11, when e-commerce was really sort of picking up in India. Uh, I think Amazon had just entered, Flipkart was 
kind of taking off. Flipkart is the Indian uh, version of Amazon, um, now owned by Walmart. And it was just kind of taking off. But, you know, even back then, I had this feeling like that, you know, marketplace models have their place in e-commerce. But I always thought that there is a far more bespoke, uh, you know, what we now call DTC model uh, is to be had. And so what I did was, you know, with the very little that I was earning, I put in some money and I said, you know what, look, I can do a little bit of graphic design. I'm going to design and sell laptop skins just because I want to see how a bespoke model would work. You know, what are the challenges? Um, you know, how do you get from point A to point B? How do you keep costs really low? How do you keep inventory low? Because if it's going to be a bespoke uh, product, it has to be that the inventory has to be super low. And I don't have all this money to invest in any case. So let's see how it works. And, you know, I cobbled together a model, which funnily enough, uh, I never really promoted, uh, but it did really well because it allowed me to experiment with things like SEO, setting up, you know, an e-commerce storefront, which wasn't easy back then because you had to do it from scratch. So I had to actually hire somebody to develop it on a platform called Magento, which is kind of like a WordPress for e-commerce. And, you know, it went from there, but it was really interesting. It was really um, interesting for me to understand, not just, you know, it's easy to design, graphic design a product. Um, I even found a printer and all of that. But, you know, how do you cut it? How do you ship it? How do you make sure it doesn't get damaged in shipping? Because back then, uh, even logistics was really hard. And so that was, you know, that was just something like I did as a side gig for many years. Uh, I finally shuttered it in, I think, 2018. Uh, but even when I was away at business school, you know, uh, my mom used to help do the physical stuff here. So we had that uh, sort of model. And I just, I didn't want to shut it down because it was doing okay. It was not taking up a lot of my time or money. Uh, but it also kept me engaged in what's happening around the internet. How does SEO work? How do, what are the new developments that are happening? Things like that. Um, while I was doing this, you know, uh, I did the gig at uh, the nonprofit and, you know, I, I realized it was time to move on. And at that time, I think I was of the opinion that maybe I wanted to grow this e-commerce startup. It was called Laptop Skin Vault. Um, it, I wanted to grow it and sort of make it something uh, real. But at that time, uh, I don't know that I had the bandwidth to do it or the know-how. Um, and it just so happened that uh, somebody we knew, he had uh, a wine company and uh, it was a startup, you know, just two or three salespeople, but he himself came with a lot of pedigree in the alphabet industry. So he, you know, he used to be the former MD of Moet in India and stuff like that. So he knew the industry inside and out. And he had this belief that the system is, is not as is not designed as well as it should be in the sense that you know the way alcohol uh, alcoholic beverages were being sort of provided or sold or experienced by people in India should be different. Uh, and funnily enough, now that I look back at it, it seems like that was an idea ahead of its time because you're seeing a lot of what he was talking about in action now with a lot of young Indian alphabet startups. Uh, but back then, you know, for me, he was basically looking for somebody who would manage digital marketing, 
and a brand, you know, basically brand manage uh, the product. Um, so it was a wine. Uh, it was a very easy drinking, really good wine. Um, but the whole premise of selling it was very different from how wine is traditionally sold, where it's paired with food and things like that. You know, when you come to India, it doesn't quite work like that because uh, the food in India has a lot of spices, so it's it's very hard to hero the wine. Or... I don't think I ever remember drinking wine exactly. in India. <laughs> yeah. And so he his whole concept was wine should be a drink as easy as, you know, as you would pick up a beer or a vodka or a cocktail, right? Um, and he wanted it to be fun. He wanted to, you know, he we had a mixologist. He incorporated the wine in a lot of really fun cocktails and things like that. But it back then it was really hard. It was a really hard sell. Um, and you know, talking to the industry, uh, the restaurateurs, the hoteliers, it was really hard to sell a product like this because it was so entrenched. Right, wine is this. Uh, very very frou frou drink. Uh, you know, you, you have to have all these bells and whistles, and you have to be very very pretentious about the whole thing. And uh, it was very funny for me because, um, oddly enough, just right then I was about twenty four years old when I started, um, and right then the Indian government came up uh, with the rule, or rather the state government in the state that I live in came up with the rule that the minimum drinking age is going to be 25 years old. And I was actually younger than the, the minimum drinking age. Uh, so it was funny because, you know, a colleague of mine had to give me access to the Facebook page because Facebook wouldn't allow me to access our own brand page. Uh, so, you know, you come up against all of these things and it's, it's, you know, much like everywhere else in the world, it has these very regulated sort of distribution systems and all of that was really interesting to learn all of that for me. And so for me, that role was a lot of learning. And when I look back, you know, and I think that's something I enjoy doing with all the roles that I've had is that I learned something now and I think, oh, I could have done it differently back then, even though it was a different time. But I think it was also that it, it shows that I was able to grow with that role, but that's something about it stuck with me. You've had this sort of like classically trained education of being an engineer and then seemingly this career that goes, I'm going to go into marketing and I'm going to go just go figure it out. How does that make you feel? Funnily enough, I think I, that's what I should have done from the start. Uh, and it, it, my mum loves to tell me I told you so because she was the one who told me, you know, very unlike, uh, you know, the stereotypical Indian parents who are always talking about how their kids are going to be doctors or engineers. My parents were just like, why are you putting yourself through four years of this uh, when we know that you could be far more um, suited to a more creative career? Uh, so, you know, in hindsight, maybe I should have done something like industrial design or architecture uh, because I genuinely wanted to learn how to make stuff. Um, you know, I wanted to design things, products, uh, services, things like that. And I think that uh, I thought engineering was the way to do it because intuitively it seems like you know, you would want to get into the nitty gritties of how a machine works. Uh, but somehow that's not really what they teach you in engineering. They, they, they teach you a lot more the theory of how these things work, but you never actually get to build them in practice. Um, it's a little bit different if you're doing computer engineering or uh, computer science, because that's a lot more hands-on. But 
uh, I never really wanted to do that because I had uh, we had coding in school since I think I was in the fourth or the fifth grade. So I knew I was good at it. I enjoyed it, uh, but I did. I didn't think that I wanted to do that as a career, uh, especially when you think about how Indian uh, IT services were back then. It was almost like you know you would be one of ten thousand people for basically coding systems, and there's somebody telling you what to do. Um, and that was, I think that was the thing that really turned me off was that, and you know, I had job offers from two of the top IT firms in the country. It wasn't that, you know, it was because I wasn't getting uh, any good jobs there, but it was just that I just did not want to do that. Um, I didn't want somebody standing over my shoulder and telling me what to do. Um, and so that, that really sort of what turned me off. But I think I take a lot of the things that I learned in engineering and apply them um, into every role that I've been in. Um, you know, after I was uh, working at the wine company, in fact, one of the final projects that I actually ended up doing there was we launched the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society in India um, for a very brief period because uh, certain regulations didn't allow it to continue because, you know, there's some limits on how much ABV you can have in the alcohol that's sold and things like that. Uh, but I think that that was a really fun project for me because I got to see an established brand um, and how it translates into an experience. And that's really what the Scott Malt Whiskey Society was. It got my brain ticking the way they they built the brand back then. Um, it's a little bit different now. It's a lot more traditional now, but there are other brands who kind of have a similar ethos uh, that the Scott Hall Whiskey Society had back then. And I think that that's what really sort of attracted me uh, about that particular brand and working on it. It was really fun to actually execute uh, because it is a, a luxury brand. And so, you know, when you execute it, you also meet those kind of people who understand um, how it needs to be sort of uh, executed as an experience. So I think that was my first taste of what creating a full experience looks like. And I think that's the one thing that I take away from that particular role is that it's not about creating a single thing. It's not just the brand, it's not just the product. It's about creating that entire experience, but making sure that you do it in a way that is authentic to the brand, but also it's, it's fun. It was really, really fun. And I think that that's something that very few brands do today is that they genuinely enjoy both working on the brand, but also patronizing a brand like that. Um, they, they, it, it's a lot more structured, I think, in many ways, uh, which it, it sort of loses that sense of discovery that, you know, the, the little delight that you get from discovering something new or different. Um, and I think that's something that I always keep in mind when I'm working, no matter what kind of a brand I'm working on, because I think there's always room to create a little bit of fun, a little bit of an experience, whether it's at the back end or the front end. It's, I guess it's like the thing of like so many brands take themselves so seriously, but I have this feeling that if you went to business school, you probably would have become an engineer because you would have been like, this is too process and framework driven. I'm going to go do something else. Funny you should say that because I did go to business school. Uh, so right after that uh, role, I actually went to the U.S., uh, studied at uh, Boston University for a couple of years. Um, and I think 
one of the things, the things that I really took away from that experience were everything that happened outside the classroom. Um, so, you know, one good thing about Resistal and the reason that I wanted to go is that I knew that over a period of time, I did want to get into entrepreneurship of some kind. I wasn't sure about <clears throat> what that would look like, whether it would be uh, creating some sort of a product or service or consulting. Uh, but I think uh, what it did give me was the basics, uh, which you don't obviously you don't learn in engineering, uh, the simple stuff of you know operations, management, finance, things like that. Uh, but I think the most fun I've had in uh, business school was the classes that I didn't think I would choose uh, when I started out. And those were, you know, there was this class on uh, sustainable development, uh, which is the class was nothing like what it sounds like. It sounds really boring, right? Like it sounds like you would learn about, you know, nonprofit management and how you build sustainable businesses and things like that. Instead, you know, it was structured in a way that was um, each team, there was, it was a small class because it was an elective and each team was given a country um, and based on that country, which supposed to choose one of the, you know, the large problems like poverty or biodiversity loss or economics or something like that. And you were supposed to build a platform for that region or that country that resolved some aspect of you know that really large wicked problem and i think that's the most fun i've had in any classroom uh, just because it just forces you to think right like it's this unconstrained problem but at the same time it has a lot of constraints you have to think about you know governance you have to think about people how they behave you have to think about um, you know, who would be in charge of what? Because this, imagine this would be something that is much more multilateral than, you know, like a single agency or a company running product. Um, and I think that that was, again, you know, it was that whole aspect of, it's just fun, uh, but it translates into something real at the end. Um, and oddly enough is something that I took away from that class when I moved back to India, um, and I was sort of looking for positions. I ended up meeting, uh, you know, a former boss of mine. Uh, somebody I'd done an internship under in, when I was in engineering school. Uh, he used to run a, a sustainable development consultancy. It was one of the first of its kind in India back then. Um, and it was then sort of acquired by one of the large conglomerates uh, in India. And I, you know, I went to see him and, you know, I told him about this project that I'd done and the project that we had done was on biodiversity loss. Uh, and we talked about how um, we can create this sort of platform for uh, controlling poaching, but also the protection of apex predators. And it's something, you know, it's, it's odd, but growing up, I watched a lot of Animal Planet. I watched a lot of Discovery Channel. Uh, I think... I've watched every one of uh, the Crocodile Hunter shows. I love Fable of Him. I, I, I don't know, it's maybe it was something, you know, latent from then that sort of translated into that project and then um, the job that it led to. Uh, but he actually sort of has a family trust uh, called the Balipara Foundation. Uh, and he said, you know what, why don't you come work for us? So again, you know, it was this situation of, 
hmm, I don't know whether I can do this, but sure, why not? Uh, let, let's give it a shot. Let's let's see, you know, what we can make of this. And so um, I worked there as head of strategy for two years almost. Um, and I also did fundraising. Um, and it was, you know, one of the most fun jobs, again, that I've had. It, you know, it forced me to go to, uh, you know, the foothills of the Himalayas, talk to people who've been living in zones of, elephant conflict, uh, human-elephant conflict, a uh, lot of deaths, a lot of uh, agony because there's been so much loss. And still, you know, people maintain such a positive outlook. And it's it's so hard, right? Like we look at little things and we think, you know what, this is it. Like this is the end of everything. But they, they continue to work towards something better. And, and the thing that I learned there was you know, just working with communities um, and working with, in a way that it's not solutionism. You're truly engaging with the problem and working towards an emergent solution rather than coming in with a solution and trying to force fit it to the problem. And that's something that we do so consistently, you know, all the time uh, when, whether we're, you know, consulting for organizations or organizations themselves are building something. It's almost like somebody has an idea. Now we have to execute this. Let's find the problem where it fits. And it never really does. Um, and I think that in the long run, we're worse off for it. Um, and I think that's the thing that I really enjoyed about that role was working with people and waiting for solutions, working with them to build solutions that actually work for them. Like I can't just pick this up and replicate it in two million other places, but honestly, no solution scales like that. Uh, we, we try to make it sound like it does, but it just doesn't actually happen when people are involved because eventually people try to break or hack that system to fit them. Uh, and that's something, you know, if you live in India, you see that every single day. Uh, you see people turning things around, you know. We've, uh, you know, we've talked a lot about this when we talk about Jugaad in India, uh, which is like, you know, these low cost innovations. But where Jugaad really comes from is actually people trying to make their lives better with an imperfect solution that has been provided. And I think that's something that I really enjoyed there. And while I was working at Balipara Foundation, one of the things that, you know, I, the things that I learned outside of the classroom uh, in the U.S. when I was at business school was um, I started, I became part of this community called Speculative Futures. And, you know, before um, then, I always, you know, I understood human-centered design. I understood why it was important because I was already the way that we were doing work when I was working for the nonprofit, when I was working for the wine company, but it, it still felt very short-sighted. It, it, it still felt very immediate and short-term. Uh, it didn't feel sustainable over a longer period of time. And, you know, I always felt like there was some piece of that puzzle that was missing. And when I went, uh, you know, to Speculative Futures, uh, that's the first time I actually came in contact with this whole field called Strategic Foresight. Um, and 
for me, that was sort of the missing piece. I don't think it's the entire puzzle still, but it was the missing piece in the sense of, yes, there is a way to think long-term without predicting futures, right? Like, or predicting the future, not even futures. It's predicting the future. This, it's a singular thing and it's an absolute answer. Um, and I think that, that that's something that I really enjoy about speculative design is that it allows for possibilities. It, it allows for many, many plural futures that could happen and you're predicting nothing. You're not a fortune teller. Uh, you're not promising something uh, that you can't deliver. But what you are looking at is basically taking things that in strategic course are what we call weak signals um, and extrapolating what futures might emerge from those. Uh, because that's really how it happens. And, you know, that's that was something that really kind of stuck with me. Um, when I moved back to India, I realized that not a lot of people doing uh, this kind of work here. Uh, but I knew that I didn't want to kind of lose touch. I'm not one of those people who really sort of um, keeps talking to people if I don't have a reason to do it. Uh, and so what I did was I said, look, you know, if I have to force myself to keep in touch with this field and go my own understanding of it, um, I need to start something here. And what I realized is I was always talking to friends, friends of friends. There was enough interest in it uh, where a lot more people also wanted to learn. And so what we did was I, I started this thing called, uh, so what my practice is now called, it's called Future Tense Inc. Uh, it actually started as a meetup group. Cool. That's awesome. Uh, so, yeah. So we we invited, you know, we invited speakers, people who are working in this space or around this space. Um, we did uh, roundtable discussions around the future of mobility, the future of algorithms. Uh, we also did uh, workshops. Um, so you know, there was this uh, framework that I'm I'm still working on. I don't think it's it's there yet, but it's called Future Nama, which literally translates into a record of the future. Um, so it's, it's, it's a neologism. It's a English and a Hindi word sort of combined together. Nama in Hindi means a record. Um, so it's, it's like a record of the future, but the idea is that how do we think of futures in a cultural context? Um, so that you are not applying a blanket sort of uh, future prediction onto people. Uh, which is which traditionally tends to be very Western centric, very white. Uh, it can also be very tech centric. Uh, the idea here is to say, you know, how do we actually involve people who are going to live in that future, or whose children are going to live in that future, and make sure that they feel like they're part of it, that they don't have to change everything about themselves just to fit into this possible idea of this you know, shiny glass and metal future that somebody else has envisioned for them. So that's something, uh, you know, that, that was doing while I was working at Bali Para Foundation. After Bali Para Foundation, I actually quit and I worked with a consulting firm uh, where also I worked on a lot of new product development, cultural research and strategy for brands like Bacardi, for brands like Playboy. Um, and you know, I think that that's where a lot of what I do sort of 
came together in the way that it actually does. So one of the things that I've really learned, you know, over this entire journey has been that I don't really need to fit myself into a traditional career trajectory. Um, again, you know, each and every one of these roles has happened. In fact, you know, when I quit Balipara Foundation and started at the agency, I actually was about to take a sabbatical. You know, I was, I was going to take a few months off, you know, see what I want to do next, plan it out uh, like you're supposed to do. Um, and I just happened to run into a, somebody uh, who was then the MD of that organization. And, you know, she, she was telling me about the work they do. We had actually invited her as a speaker at Future Tense as well. Um, and, you know, we just got to talking and she said, you know, look, you know, why don't you come work with us uh, for a little while? Uh, see if you like it, right? And I was like, again, sure, why not? This podcast is brought to you by Label Sessions, the global platform that connects you to the best advice from the most interesting people. Around the world, we work with brands to connect their people to true leaders, just like the people you hear on this podcast, for live sessions of advice, mentorship, or sometimes to collaborate on ideas. To find out more, visit labelsessions.com and book in for a demo with our team. Even at the point when you start trying to plan your career, the career is still serendipitous and figure it out as it goes. I love that. I, what I'd love to learn a bit about is um, you mentioned Bacardi and Playboy. Like Play, uh, uh, Playboy is an interesting one because it's such an iconic brand, but let's just say it's got, it's got some baggage. And then taking that into India sounds fascinating because there's a totally different culture from where that brand came from. I'd love to learn how you do what you do with that brand, if you can talk about that a bit. It's funny, Playboy actually came to us at a point when they were um, in a period of transition themselves. Um, so, you know, a little while before Q Hafner passed away, it had been acquired by a private equity firm. And uh, they had pivoted away from the magazine entirely um, because they realized that, you know, the brand is much more than that. And Playboy traditionally has been a very big licensing brand. Uh, They've had presence all over the world. It's a very, very well-recognized brand as well. Um, and they were actually kind of building that out. They had been in India before and it hadn't worked out for them, largely because, you know, they didn't they didn't really plan. Uh, you know, just sort of somebody came to them and said, hey, you know, we'd like to license your brand, but wasn't really an area of focus. But what they realized was, you know, there's an opportunity in India. There's a growing opportunity um, in theory, uh, it could be a really, really big business. And so they came to us and they said, look, we have this theory, but we're not sure that it's true or not. Uh, we want you to find out, uh, but we are not sure what exact, how exactly we want you to find it out. Like, just go do it. Um, it's very rare that somebody comes to you with a such a blank canvas. Um, you know, a lot of people who work in consulting and agency are, they think that that's their dream project, right? Like the client says, go to whatever you want, get us an answer. But it's actually really, really difficult uh, because there are no constraints, right? Like, yes, the budget is eventually going to be a constraint, but before you even get to that point, like, what is it that you're going to do for them uh, that will actually help them, lead them towards answers that they're seeking? 
And so I was leading that project. And the way we designed that project was to say that, look, you know, this is the agency I worked with was, it's a business design agency. Um, but my, you know, interest in futures sort of combined with that uh, is how we designed that project. And we said, hey, look, you know, we're going to look at, uh, even if, say, you know, everything goes right, we find out in this research that everybody's up for a brand like Playboy and, you know, let's, let's just go all out in the market. It's still going to take them three years to five years to build a business of any scale. Uh, to reach an audience at that scale. Because India, what it looks like this shiny, big opportunity, you know, largest population in the world, youngest population in the world. It's a very, very complicated ecosystem because it's extremely diverse culturally. Um, you know, every few hundred kilometers, languages change, cuisines change, clothing changes, everything changes right and what traditionally organizations especially international brands come here and do is that you know what we're gonna imagine that this is like this one homogenous whole and we're just gonna transplant our international business model here and it's just gonna work right like that 300 million people this is 1.3 billion people it'll work it doesn't work um, it's, it's a lot more complex than that, you know, brand after brand has come here and found out that if you don't cater to the audience in a more traditional way, in the sense that you are actually, you know, you're actually keeping the cultural nuance in mind, you fail and you fail really hard in India. It, it's, it's fairly public as well, because, you know, it's, it's supposed to be this big opportunity so Presumably, you're talking it up to your investors as well. Um, and so that's how we designed this. And we said that, look, you know, Playboy, if they, first we have to find out if there is room for them to play. And if there is, then who is their audience? Who is this emerging Indian that they should be speaking to? And what are the kinds of things that the consumers would accept or expect from a brand like and so that's how we designed it. We did this massive cultural study of India, uh, where we studied the emerging culture over a period of three months. Uh, I think we went to almost nine or 10 cities, uh, spoke to very, very interesting people, went to very, very interesting spaces. We analyzed products, brands, spaces, did a lot of secondary research. Uh, to understand the culture around all of this. And uh, we actually ended up doing a really fun um, sort of project that all of us heartily, thoroughly enjoyed. Uh, it wasn't just, you know, it wasn't just lip service for the brand, uh, but largely also us finding out so much about the country uh, that we live in, because, you know, you do tend to stereotype a little bit uh, you do tend to uh, you do tend to make up your mind about how things are supposed to work, and people consistently surprise you. And so, you know, we did all of this research, which is we we actually created a whole bunch of tools, right? Like when you talk about brand like Playboy, you have to talk about things like pleasure and sexuality, 
and no matter how open people are, um, there's always a point at which, you know, societal propriety, proprietary comes into uh, place, right? Like people are a little bit hesitant to talk about certain things to strangers. And so we found different ways uh, in which to provoke this thought more anonymously, um, but with, you know, the, the audience that we had in mind. And, uh, we had people create sexual fantasy mood boards. We had people submit anonymous erotic stories. It tells you a lot about how people talk about these things, think about them. Um, and we analyzed all of that information um, and then, you know, came up with a set of categories that the brand should look at. Um, and the one thing that we did that I think for me is what really kind of put all of us on the same sort of uh, page in terms of how we view that research is that a lot of times um, good research dies in, uh, what do you call it, in, in PowerPoint presentations, right? Like it's it's too linear. When you're talking about rich information like this, it's just, it dies in, when you put it in a linear presentation format. And so what we ended up actually doing uh, for the brand in terms of uh, explaining this research to them is that we created an entire walkthrough experience in the office. Um, and we made it like, so we, the metaphor that we used, um, which is, you know, the best metaphor to use for a country where nothing is truly in the past or the future, you know, all of it sort of coexists. Um, we recreated a bazaar or an Indian marketplace where all of these co contradictions coexist even in real life. Like if you were to go to a marketplace in India, uh, you'd find the most high tech shops right next to some shop selling, you know, some of the most traditional medicines or, um, you know, things for rituals and things like that. So it's, it still coexists. Like you wouldn't blink an eye um, if you were to be confronted that, with this, if you lived in this country. But to somebody coming from outside, that contradiction is a lot more apparent. And so we said, you know what, let's recreate this space uh, like in, uh, was like a bazaar uh, and we embed the research into it and so that's what we actually ended up doing before we actually and when we presented the insights to the client and I think that really helped the client understand the information in the context in which it was gathered rather than these you know these abstract insights about a country that they don't know a lot about and I think that that's something that really stood out. We did something fairly similar for Bacardi as well. We did a new product innovation for them. Uh, well, the first step of it was to actually explore the category that we were creating the product in. And again, we did almost like this walkthrough, uh, no screens, everything sort of printed out on big rolls of paper and stuff on the walls. Um, I actually did a trends piece, which was, you know, I took up like a, little corner of the office um and i just like went all beautiful mind on it and just you know lots of string lots of tape lots of uh, pictures printed out 
uh, but the idea there is to, it really shows connections uh, that aren't very evident in you know a, a linear digital format so to speak and we also yeah it, it we also experimented with you know with playboy it's something that the client didn't eventually go for but we actually created like a prototype system where we we said look you know this is research that we have to keep doing over and over again not at this scale but you do need to keep refreshing it so that the categories that you do enter here keep evolving um and we actually prototype like a digital system where you know you could put in a prompt uh, and it would pull up you know tagged information from the database written in the manner of you know sort of small articles or whatever it might be or little blurbs that you know an ins a, a brand manager or an insights manager could actually pull information from uh, to translate into a product or a service that they are going to sort of put out there in the market so i think you know honestly like that's the thing that i truly enjoy about doing really good high quality projects and you know i continue to work with playboy now in an in my own sort of consulting firm because the pandemic put the project on hold uh, once we came back from the pandemic i had sort of uh, branched out on my own and they came to me and they said hey look you know you understand this research really well help us execute it in the in the indian market and what's the thing that you're sort of notorious for with future tense what's the question that you love to be asked what's the what's the brief that you really want people to bring to you i think it's the brief is pretty similar to this is to understand where a culture is moving uh whether it's at a country level or it's at subculture level because that's something that uh we excel at we do really really good work in that space um you know worked on a project last year with a a cpg european cpg company um and we did research for them uh, for their hydration vertical they were trying to build tenia strategy um and we ended up doing research for them for france spain china and indonesia and the us um and again over there you know i we love the fact that the client was very open to the research that we came back they didn't come in with preconceived notions and say hey look you know these are no go areas or we must do this or we must do that um but largely you know i we enjoy sort of challenging a set notion so for example you know when the client was briefing us one of the things they said was like you know hey we've been in china i mean we've been in uh, yeah china france and spain for many many years um maybe there are learnings that we can take from here and apply to the us or to indonesia instead you know we were able to come back to them with research that said that hey look you know what actually you've been in indonesia for a very long time as well here are the things that that market has presented to you as challenges that you have overcome and france and spain are now beginning to see similar challenges in terms of climate uh, crises in terms of droughts or water contamination and things like that you could actually take learnings from what you're doing in indonesia and apply it to france and spain and that you know sort of really help them take a step back and say hang on maybe we're thinking about this wrong like 
it doesn't have to be that we go from the so-called developed nations towards the underdeveloped nations. There are a lot of things that we can learn from these markets and apply back um, to our traditional markets, which are now changing quite drastically. I mean, France and Spain have seen record droughts in the last two or three years, I think. Uh, but Indonesia has been grappling with, uh, you know, water insecurity for a very long time. They've been grappling with severe impacts of uh, climate change for a number of years now. Uh, but, you know, seemingly they seem to have, as a business as well, they seem to have found some solutions there. It's a very difficult geography. It's, you know, it's, it's something like 17,000 islands uh, make up that country. So, you know, they've seemingly uh, figured out a very interesting distribution system because uh, they are one of the leading brands in that country. So I think it really helps for organizations um, that, and we love that we're able to find the understanding, the cultural research and the understanding to back these things, but also to say that, hey, but what if you were to look at this differently? How do you... Uh, come at it with an entirely new perspective because that's again where we're going to find something that you haven't explored before or that you haven't traditionally done but would probably stand you in better stead as you go along over the years as a lot of different things are going to change um, if you are able to be agile enough to adapt i think it's it's really um, it, it makes for really interesting solutions in terms of where you're at now, like if you think back, like that career that you've been through and the amazing work that you do today, because we're all about label sessions as the best advice from the most interesting people. You've done all this interesting stuff. What advice would you give yourself if you went back 10, 12 years? I've had to unlearn a lot of what we are taught in traditional education, um, whether it's in engineering or it's in business school or, you know, even, even as young as sort of, uh, you know, grade school and high school. One of the things is, you know, we were taught that we have to have the answer. Um, and I think we don't. I, I, I don't think that we have to start with this premise that we have to have one answer at the end of whatever process that we're doing, right? Um, I think, and that's something that we see a lot even in the consulting field, like here's the silver bullet you know, efficiency or productivity or optimization. But it rarely works like that in the real world, right? Like you find courses that come in and they easily break those systems because they're so very, very rigid. I think the advice that I give myself is that, yes, people, people do have these grand plans of how their careers are going to pan out. But I think there are very few people whose careers do pan out in that way. Um, and sometimes I feel like if it, it worked out exactly the way you planned it out, is there something that you missed along the way? Uh, was there an opportunity that you just didn't see because it just wasn't in your grand scheme of things? Like you planned things to such an extent. So I think I'm, I think I'll be telling myself to be a lot more comfortable with ambiguity um, as much as I am now. 
uh, I think I wasn't so much back then. Um, I think it's it's been a process to get here and to be comfortable uh, being uncomfortable, uh, so to speak. Uh, but I think that that's something that I would tell myself that don't beat yourself up over, you know, because you didn't work for a certain brand name company or in certain or don't have a certain title on your resume uh, because it just it tends to have it it tends to pigeonhole you you're pigeonholing yourself a little bit uh, if you if you do that where do you go to to feed your brain what what creative sources are you when you have to like re-energize and feel creative again where do you go to i think i one of the things that i i love doing ever since i was a kid um is, is reading. I read a lot. Um, I obviously read a lot of um, sort of nonfiction and articles uh, in that sense now that I'm older and because it's part of the work that I do. Uh, but I think fiction is really my go-to place. I love, I love reading fiction. A uh, lot of psychological thrillers, murder mysteries, but you know, occasionally a little bit of sci-fi uh, and fantasy as well. Uh, I think that really sort of opens up my brain to new possibilities, new ways of thinking. Um, I often actually read uh, uh, YA novels, you know, uh, young adult fantasy or sci-fi, because I think that there's something there that is a little bit more unconstrained than the sci-fi that is sort of written for, or fantasy that's written for adults. Um, I think um, that that really helps me uh, think a little bit uh, outside of the box. Um, I also enjoy watching uh, movies and television shows. Uh, there are some that I keep going back to because they're just very underrated, but really, really good shows. Uh, again, you know, it's it's always something that is a little bit outside the norm. Uh, it's, it's a little bit... Uh, different from what you'd expect. Uh, I think those are the kinds of books or movies or television shows that really sort of get me to think. I do occasionally read nonfiction as well, but not as much because I find it a little bit tedious uh, to read nonfiction. Uh, I know it's, it's not a dumb thing to say uh, that, you know, as, as somebody who works in consulting or a business that I don't read a lot of nonfiction. I do occasionally, but it just, it takes me longer to get through because uh, some books just sort of tend to drone on a little bit, but others, uh, there are some that I've really enjoyed reading um, and some that have actually helped me come to terms with also, you know, this sort of ambiguity that's been part of my career and the way that I work. Um, you know, it's it's it can be daunting not to have the answer before you start a project uh, because you know some there's somebody's paying you a good amount of money or trusting you to come up with something for them uh, that will work which they're going to actually invest a lot of time and effort into um, and so I think that's something that over a period of time uh, there are some books that have helped uh, sort of clarify that a little bit in saying that it's okay not to have you know that deep expertise or that uh, you know that that one single answer that's going to solve everything 
Um, I think one of the books that I really enjoyed reading was Range, uh, uh, which is a book about generalists. Uh, I thought it was really fascinating. Um, I also really loved reading uh, Originals by Adam Grant. Um, one of the aspects that really stuck out to me in that book was actually about uh, procrastination um, and what that actually means. Uh, because, you know, we always look at, at procrastination as a bad thing, right? Like it's, it's anti-productivity. Uh, it's something that you don't, or you aren't doing us, you're not doing something that you're meant to if you're procrastinating. Uh, but I've realized that, you know, in my schooling as well as my career, uh, the times that I've procrastinated has been one of two things. Either I really was afraid to do something or didn't want to do it. I just, it just didn't appeal to me. Or it was because it was something that I needed to think about but not consciously think about. So there are many times, you know, uh, a lot of authors talk about how challenging it is to see a blank page in front of them. That's because you're actively thinking about a thing and it's not happening. Uh, and I think that uh, there are many times when I procrastinate, uh, but not in the traditional sense of the word as sort of whiling away time, but in the sense that I put off a task for a while because I need to be doing something else while my brain sort of processes what, you know, the information that I've gathered or, uh, you know, the, the response that I want to frame. Uh, and so what I've learned over the years is not to push as hard uh, because I've realized that it, it leads to much more interesting results. Uh, when I let that thing take the time that it needs to take. I'm 100% the same. I, once I learn just to like let it sit and don't force it, you become so much better at like getting to the output that you want to get to. Exactly. How weird are you, Mansi? Very. I prefer the term eclectic, um, but the word eccentric has been thrown around uh, a little as well. Uh, I, I am extremely weird because I have the strangest habits when it comes to learning about things i'm just i'm very very curious uh, that can be attested to by the 50 tabs that are currently open on my browser uh, just because these are things that i have to do i don't care how when i get to do it uh, but i must read them at some point uh, because it's just interesting to me uh, i it it doesn't matter the subject it doesn't matter um you know what what category or what uh perspective it is it's just if i think it's interesting i will pick on it and read it or i will open a book and read it so uh, i am pretty weird because i will always have a collection of very strange information there'll be lots of strange rabbit holes that i will be willing to go into to figure something out as well. thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today this has been awesome i really appreciate it. i'm so excited to work with you on with label sessions absolutely thanks so much so concludes Label Sessions Presents. Be sure to follow and subscribe to the podcast, no matter your platform. And of course, start your journey with us today at labelsessions.com.